This is an Area Code podcast. Before, if someone criticized the soundtrack or vocals on the soundtrack, I could defend my teammates. If someone doesn't like the soundtrack now or thinks that the rapping is whack, thinks that the enemy design or balance is off, that's me. It's all my collaborators, but it's also me explicitly. If my dad doesn't end up liking it, like, that's something I'm already in doing intentional work to come to peace with. If people don't like the game or find that there's some critical flaw with it, that's, that's going to hurt. Hi, everyone. I'm Richard Clark, and you're listening to Video Game Feelings, a podcast about the way video games make us feel and the people who make and play them. Today on the show, Zalavir Nelson Jr., a game developer and head of Strange Scaffold, the studio responsible for games like Space Warlord, Organ Trading Simulator, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, and the upcoming El Paso Elsewhere. From the titles of his games, you can tell that Zalavir is not interested in the mainstream. He's a collaborative auteur who's focused less on creating a game for everyone than he is in self-expression. He has a specific idea of the kind of games he'd like to make, and he's very focused on accomplishing it. No compromises, no detours. This all sounds really satisfying to me creatively, but there's a pretty huge trade-off. After all, what would you do if a relatively unfiltered representation of who you are was put on display to the world? Not just to be consumed, but to be actively judged, reviewed, and scored. And what would you do if the people closest to you gave you feedback that amounted to something less than 7 out of 10? As someone who loves receiving affirmation and is emotionally shaken by negative feedback, this was exactly the kind of personal risk that I wanted to explore with Zalavir. So every podcast, we start with this specific question, um, and it's kind of a two-parter. What have you been playing, and how does that game make you feel? Is, cool. is this the very first question? Have we actually begun? Sometimes I'll use, like, preamble mm. conversation. It just depends. But Okay. I appreciate the notice. We're in it now. I'm in podcast yeah. mode. <laughs> hey, gamers! <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, please. I, <laughs> the, part of my goal, uh, part of the purpose of that ambiguity is to prevent any form of podcast mode other than just presence. But, you know, um, yeah, just be I yourself. I can't turn it you off know, once obviously. it's in there now. My family's going to be dealing with podcast <laughs> mode all night. Uh, in all seriousness, I've been playing a, a lot of Elden Ring, like a lot of people. Yeah. In particular, because my dad unexpectedly fell in love with it. He's huh. not really into Souls-like games, but Elden Ring, he really was compelled by. And so, like, he'll call me up during a work day and say, hey, uh, what's Poise? And I'm like, I, I I, don't know. I think it has something to do with how many things before you get stun-locked. And he's like, okay, so have you been to Azuria's side tomb? And I'm like, I, I'm in the middle of a pitch call, Dad. Uh, no, I, have, I haven't <laughs> been there yet. I think that's right across from the sealed tunnel, though. Like, uh, yeah. this is my... I've played co-op games before, and I've even gone through campaigns with people before, but I can't remember the last time I 
played something like a Dark Souls and had this simultaneous discovery process that's also kind of like a race. So when I went to GDC, that was a week of progress that I lost and he got ahead of me. So now, so we've just been going back and forth sharing knowledge and because of the type of game that Elden Ring is, I'm still finding things that he didn't find at all and we're going and jumping into each other's worlds and helping each other. So um, if you want to reconnect with your dad uh, or repair a breach in that relationship, uh, Elden Ring is the game to play. That's an official endorsement. Yeah, ca- counseling is not necessary here. It's just Elden Ring. So when you said that, you you said uh, my dad doesn't normally play, and I was going to assume, I said assumed you were going to say games. Your dad clearly, I guess, plays games. What what does he normally play if he doesn't normally play Souls games? He really likes big AAA open world things. So Yeah. Okay, uh, so th- this is a, na- a natural bridge for him. Yeah, so he he played a lot of Horizon Zero Dawn, Witcher Three, Cyberpunk, yeah. uh, any of those that comes out. He enjoyed Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, by the by. Uh, mm-hmm. But those games are more so about content and their storytelling inside of these large lists of activities to tick off, as opposed to, for lack of a better term, difficulty. Like yeah. you <laughs> being invested in uh, killing that boss thirty times. He's never been the person to bang his head against the wall like that but yep Elden ring manages to hit that sweet spot of being something refreshing and new that makes the difficulty not just palatable but a natural part of your journey is the primary reason you're playing it because of what it does for your relationship with your dad is that like a big part of it for you not really we have a Mm -hmm. pretty divergent gaming taste uh these days but the fact that one of the earliest pictures that exists of me is I'm a baby holding an unplugged controller in my dad's lap and both of our eyes are fixed with rapt attention on a screen is a pretty good uh, encapsulation of how I eventually came to be doing this for a living. Uh, Video games have always been a part of my existence and treated as a natural and even healthy way of uh, approaching the world, which I know it absolutely isn't the case for everyone or even for a lot of people in my generation. So that's, that's been an interesting uh, thing to encounter, especially over time. What it means though, as much as people might bemoan, like I I wasn't able to play games as a kid or uh, my parents don't play games. What it means though, on the flip side of that (laughs) is that your dad can be an active player of video games and not play or enjoy your games, and that hurts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, I was gonna ask. So tell me about that. Like, has he has he not played your games, or he's just not interested, or what? Quite a few of my games, he isn't interested in. So that's like kind of an interesting thing where it's like, hey, Dad, you've been playing a lot of Elden Ring. Uh, what about an airport for aliens can run by dogs? You have a machine that can run it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, uh. Yeah. Uh, so ha- anyway, have you found Azuria's side tip? <laughs> oh, that. Su- yeah, that sucks. That 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 really sucks. Hmm. That sucks when your when your parents are like apparently disinterested. He, he has <laughs> and, he has his gaming taste. Like they're really passionate and supportive yeah. about what I do. But then like, <laughs> there's one of my games. I won't say which one. They're like, so people. This is my dad and my mom just dunking on me. Mm-hmm. Just like so, people they pay money for this. Like they they buy they buy this on purpose. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. yeah, they do. Another and yeah. 
yet another turn of the coin, when something I make does manage to grip him, that's that's like a triple crown. There's nothing to quite surmount that feeling. I've, I've read good reviews of my work, but like hmm. getting on the phone and my dad is distracted and I find out the game of mine that he he's really attached to is Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator. That's the big one that oh, I've directed yeah. that he really loved. And like... Yeah. He was really caught up in the stock market simulation and buying, and he had a rivalry with Chad Shakespeare. And on the phone, even like I was talking to my mom, and in the background, I could hear him going like, okay, I need to pay off this. Fuck, I'm not going to pay this dog again. Uh, and <laughs> mm-hmm. go into the next trading day, the next trading day. And he got several endings in that game. That was, if anything, I appreciate that there's games of mine that he's not interested in because it means that those that yeah. he is interested in, that's sort of a genuine passion and interest that uh, has been gained and that he's playing it as a normal player. I appreciate that kind of feedback and that groundedness because especially if you're a fairly visible figure in games, it can become hard to gain a perspective that does not carry an inherent respect of you someone who's like well you know mm-hmm, i'm not mm-hmm. tip- i wouldn't be typically into this game but like it's a zolivir nelson jr game and uh that is nice and i certainly would like for a lot of players to <laughs> come in with an inherently positive uh, perspective or some sort of excitement or anticipation but having something that is purely like do i like this as a game not my thing i looked at it and it's not my thing even if i support you that's that that's that's nice to have, and and I appreciate the voices in my life that are like that. I try to actively speak to those people often because I, I think you need that. I totally agree with everything you've said. The thing that is still striking to me is just that for you, your parents are the ones who are <laughs> who are not automatically impressed, um, and they, and I they, think they like love my and dad's support the general work. But like, yeah, uh, in the stuff they do. But like the individual yes, games, supportive parents who are like honest with you. Yeah, supportive parents who are like, yeah, yeah, not a. F- <laughs> why? Why <laughs> do people buy this? <laughs> yeah, this is not for me. Basically, mm. yeah, that's that's interesting because my my uh, so my dad's not around anymore, but my mom is extremely supportive. Like, likes all my tweets, that kind of thing, you know. And it's just it's wild. It's wild to think about. Um. Yeah, basically having focus group parents in a way where it's like, oh, this is like going to represent uh, the mainstream in some ways, and is and you can kind of have a trust in that. I mean, it's a trade off, obviously, but um, to your point from earlier, it feels like it would kind of suck <laughs> sometimes when you just want someone to cheerlead you a little bit. Yeah, um, and so having multiple perspectives, uh, people who are very honesty, yeah. people who are. Uh, People basically knowing the perspective that someone brings to your work is a little bit of a superpower that you can use as an artist to get the type of feedback you want at a time. There's there's times that I send my work to people who I know they know they aren't. What I want is the encouragement. But I'm like, I'm going to send it to three encouraging people and one person who's just going to say some stuff. And I'm not going to agree with most of that stuff, but there's going to be like one thing in there yep. that I need to hear. Yep. And I need to hear it yep. now. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to know like how you ended up with such divergent tastes from like your dad. Like um, I guess embedded in that question is like 
the 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 beginning middle and middle to that journey of like playing games with your dad like what did you play with him growing up and and how did you end up making things that are so different than what you enjoyed together so early on we came from a very uh, lower middle class background mm-hmm. you know military brat uh, enlisted military mm-hmm. so we weren't always buying games and we didn't uh, necessarily have the ability to support divergent game tastes. Uh, So most of my library, there would be like a game or two for me, but most of my library was things that my dad was either interested in or also interested in. So we could both play that. Uh, That one of my favorite examples of that is uh, I adored the first fable game and my dad did too. So yeah, Fable 2, they got it for my birthday. And I was like, wow. Uh, but my dad was real excited by Fable 2. So he played Fable 2 on my birthday. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> this is like me. This is 100% what I would do on my son's birthday. I, yeah. We, the th- the like, thing is, you... he worked real hard for that Fable 2. And he's waited a long time to crack yeah. it open. Right. <laughs> He's right. justified. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, for a while we had similar tastes, but I think by, by the time I started getting a teenager, there's definitely ways in which our opinions about various games started to diverge. Mm-hmm. I think Alan Wake might have been one of the big turning points where he did not enjoy Alan Wake. And Alan huh. Wake is the game, he, he thought it was, like, freaky. He's like, ugh. Uh, but I fell in love with that. And it's the game that yeah. literally made me want to become a writer. So. Oh, wow. Uh, get, getting into this place where I, I recognize that my gaming tastes would be di- would be different than my dad sometimes was interesting. And that ultimately culminated in a place where now I'm an adult, games is, is my job, dad uh, is playing a lot of games still, and we play them for entirely different reasons. And yeah. I think, if anything, over time, the thing that emerged as different was not so much that we have different gaming tastes, because we enjoy a lot of the same stuff. We both enjoy a Borderlands. We both enjoy an open world game. But mm-hmm. he is in there to experience the content. He's going to go into that 200-hour open world RPG and tick off all the boxes. And yeah. if I have seen what a game has to say in about five hours, that's what I'm really invested in so i might look for like the one big side quest i've heard people talk about or i'm just trying to see what is the perspective of the game its soul for lack of a better term and once i know for a large majority of content focused games i guess you could put it i'm done mad max i loved mad max is a really well designed game that i think deserved a better reception than it got Mm. Uh, it does really interesting things with that open world model but i played about 10 20 hours and i was done and my dad he completed it, which again provides a really interesting uh, base for discussion where I can ask my dad like, hey, where did that game end up going or what does that actually feel like? In contrast to my artist friends who are saying like, oh man, I wish games were shorter or uh, having some <laughs> similar opinions about various games or different types of games. Yeah. From his perspective, I can hear why it's valuable that this game is 200 hours and that the last 150 are largely identical. What does he like about the game of yours that he does like, Organ Trader? He found it really compelling, the base loop very compelling, and he likes uh-huh. management games as well. He has liked management strategy games since I was young, but Organ Trading Simulator, 
despite having this weird concept, has this frenetic pacing and this... idea of, hey, what if you made a management game for adults that are tired? That was literally kind of like the ethos. I love 4X games, huh. but every time I come to something that's like Civilization, but not Civilization, and starts hitting me with graphs and statistics and whatever else, I'm going to have to learn this game for five hours before I can start playing this game at the base level. Mm-hmm. I bail out. I'm like, okay, yeah. guess my time with X incredible like lauded series is over before it even begins so having a game that could for people who never play some management games or don't want to learn management games or just want a different experience within management games something that combines improvisational thought and speed with a traditionally quite measured uh, genre is was an explicit mm-hmm. goal of the project so to see that it worked for my dad who loves management games and other people i know who typically don't play that genre at all and seeing in a very tangible way that those goals were achieved was very satisfying when you're playing video games and you're you're sort of like trying to find what's the soul of this game what does that do for you like what are you getting out of that i think the big thing that i get from investigating the soul of the game or of a movie or of a book is I believe that just like our real life experiences, everything we see, touch, and experience in terms of our media tastes has an ability to alter our perspective going forward. You can choose to grow Mm -hmm. from experiencing anything, even if you despised it. So actively attempting to learn from everything I see and watch and over time using that to calibrate other things uh, that I'm looking for and finding things that I'm passionate about is just in general a really exciting journey. That really resonates with me. Like, I don't know, for me, I I use the refrain like change my life a lot more than I probably should. Mm. But like I find that art media often will affect me in a way that puts a different lens on stuff and makes me feel differently about life circumstances and things. And and I get, so I resonate with that a lot. Like this idea of like, like I also had a pretty formative experience with Alan Wake of all things. Like I, like that game was a big deal for me. Um, And in fact, that was a time when so many games were a big deal. I mean, Red Dead Redemption came out around that time and like, I don't know, like Fallout 3 and all of these games really impacted me in a time when I think I was at my most, it was a formative time for me, Mm. right? Was there ever a time where you feel like you were most impacted by games in that way or, or is it pretty like normative? I wouldn't say most impacted. I'd, I'd say, I'd say though that I can definitely tell for individual pieces of work, the before and after of when I've experienced them. There's another game called the magic circle by question games. I can look at experiencing that and see a distinct divergence point of the person I was beforehand and the things I was making in the experiences and I both built and had going forward from it. So actively looking for that opportunity and everything I see is 
the driving light of most of my media consumption these days, which does mean that there is these interesting examples. I'm get, I'm becoming more comfortable with putting things down instead of like, I, mean, I spent money on this. Uh, as much as that sucks, yeah. uh, I'm I, I'm still very money conscious. But yeah, on a human <laughs> cosmic level, recognize I have a limited amount of time on this earth. And with that in mind, if something is not compelling me to stay there anymore, if I'm not learning anything more, and if it is not just purely enjoyable to be be there, basically I don't have to justify putting something down. So these days I'll do that, uh, which leads to this odd example where sometimes I'm playing like the big, the next big AAA open world thing. And after about five hours, I'm done. If the game is not done saying what it needs to say, I've at least heard what I needed to hear from it. Um, uh-huh. And I accept that point. Man, that's such a nice, like, that's such a nice, um, I don't know what the word is, maybe boundary, but it's actually helpful to me because I have struggled with when to put games down, especially now, like, I have Game Pass, yeah. right? Which is, which sort of solves that problem of like, oh, but I spent money on this. Um, you don't have to care about that. The, the funny thing is, in the last two months, I bought... Dying Light 2, and then I bought Elden Ring right after that and haven't played Dying Light 2 probably more than two hours and feel some amount of frustration around that. But there is that question of, like, when am I done with these games? I know it's not when I finish them. I will never finish all of these games, definitely, that come with Game Pass, but even that I buy. And the the sort of, like, boundary of, okay, have I heard what, I'm gonna have I gotten what I'm gonna get out of it in terms of who I am and personal growth and like new perspective. Like, have I gotten that from it? I think is a really helpful. I mean, gameplay loop sort of speaks for itself, right? Are you enjoying this so much you can't stop playing? Is a, a self-answering question. Like Peggle Two, I completed <laughs> <laughs> to completion. I loved that game so much that I would play it again. Um, like I just love it. But uh, yeah, something like Dying Light Two and even Elden Ring is like I feel like I'm not gonna finish these games. There's no way I'm going to finish these games. And then the question is a nagging one, right? Which is like, when do I get to put this down? <laughs> you know? Yeah, especially if if a if a game is part of the zeitgeist, that makes it even more difficult, right? Because people are talking about this yep. boss in Elden Ring, and you're like, I haven't seen that boss yet. Is my experience actually mm. done, or is it going to change? Feeling more freedom to ignore that and say, yeah, no, I'm done, is, I think, really, really important. And when I see people sort of, like, talking about their backlogs, uh, jokingly bemoaning them, uh, feeling guilt over not experiencing the hot thing of the summer because they're going through something else that they enjoy or rewatching something that they enjoy. I mourn that a little bit. I kind of want to go to them and say, you deserve to be free. You can yeah, be free yeah. of this. You don't have to feel this pressure. But I think there's elements of our media landscape that, if anything, encourage that sense of constant inadequacy. There's so much I still haven't watched yet. There's yeah. so much I still haven't watched yet. Uh, and I don't see that mindset going away anytime soon. Yeah, it feels um, very similar to kind of... I mean, streaming have made has made this a real problem with media. And this is like something where... Like, if you like media, then you're going to feel this very acutely 
in a way that people like back in the day used to feel with like new cars or something, mm. you know, it feels like the same impulse of like, I always need a new thing. There, it's a, it's a lack of contentment, right? It's like, I mean, I'm going to admit I've felt this way. I will not be full and whole again until I watch fill in the blank or until <laughs> I play fill in the blank. Um, I would not, I would never say that like self-consciously, but I believe I feel that sometimes. <laughs> capitalism, consumerism, like those are the effects of that, essentially, like just people telling you uh, implicitly or explicitly that that is the case. It's just the latest expression of something that is a common and necessary human impulse. It goes throughout human history, and that is we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time (laughs) in a life to experience everything. I think think actually in, in... uh, the Bible, there's a really interesting verse about this that says, he has set the world in their hearts that they cannot experience all that they would. This idea just that every generation mm-hmm. has its own way of expressing, oh, I won't get to see it all. I won't get to see the next yeah. chapter. I think our current attitudes and discussions around media consumption are just the latest version of that. And with that, this perspective... I am genuinely excited to see if I will discover what the next version of that looks like. Is it that the next version is you will see everything that a content creator has produced or that a given uh, creator has made? Um, there were people in the Elden Ring forums for whom that was the case. They were they were mm. actively terrified that they would die before Elden Ring came out. The from soft they had and and the stories they were able to tell of they played Kingsfield and then they played Demon Souls and then they played Dark Souls and they followed this series through all of its twists and turns and here's the culmination of it all Elden Ring what if I die yeah maybe maybe in one age that was like wilt I perish before the cherry tree has its first fruit uh-huh. yeah well it's it's a little unnerving in terms of like. I th- I don't want to trash these people. I, I but there is there is an unnervingness about it in terms of like Elden Ring as promised land, but it does make me think. I don't know anyone who was disappointed by this thing, which is a little bit crazy to think about. It's like, the only thing that I've seen actually achieve that. Yeah, it, it that is a that's scary. <laughs> honestly, like I only see video games disappoint people that's all you ever see and i'm not talking about cyberpunk i'm talking about the you know the freaking best of the best or whatever people always find problems with it or have like an empty feeling after it comes out but i have seen people who have loved this game play it twice <laughs> all the way through like and still be happy and and content it feels like eternity in some ways right like it it genuinely feels like <laughs> I like pe- people are 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 content to do this the rest of their lives and it's just a little weird to me. It's it's wild. There is this genuine sense that Elden Ring is not just built in a unique way, but uh mm-hmm. the reason why so many of these things fail people uh, in the end is because they're projecting their need onto it. This is going yeah. to make me yes. yeah. happy. 
<laughs> this is going to be the thing that satisfies all of these needs that I have as a human being. Mm-hmm. But Elden Ring exists now. Uh, it's done. If you are just a gamer, and Elden Ring was your one and only, and even if it satisfied everything you want, now Elden Ring exists, and it's done. And there's nothing There's nothing more you can really get from it. You can make a, a bunch of builds, and you can play through it a bunch of times, but it is fundamentally a completed work. Uh, or maybe you that was Cyberpunk for you, or No Man's Sky, and it disappointed you. Uh, or maybe... You actually loved those games, and as they transformed, you felt left behind by them. If you are only defined by video games, or God forbid, a single video game, what a terrifying abyss that is to look into, to, to have nothing yeah. else. Uh, yeah. So I, I read comics. I read, I've gotten into manga recently. Uh, I mm-hmm. watch TV and movies and foreign language films and games because... I think part of that is necessary for your sanity. And on top of that, like I'm a Christian, I've got these other influences and factors, including my faith in my life that are to attempt to provide the balance. So I can look at something like Elden Ring and love it and enjoy it and see it as a culmination, but also not deal with the inevitable emptiness when you look around the corner for what might exist. Yeah, I am also a Christian, um, and I uh, consistently am finding myself feeling empty <laughs> after after playing things I, or watching things I was very much looking forward to or powering through a television show or whatever. I don't know what it says about me and my relationship with God, <laughs> but um, but it, it 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 has to say I don't know I don't know what it, it means. But I I do want to like that those questions of identity are really interesting to me, mm. especially. Actually, I want to talk to you about your work and the way that you frame it. Like a lot of your games, really probably three, I think, they feel like jokes, right? Like like you, you've talked about people buying games as a joke. You know, there's Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator. The simular, simulator genre in general, anytime you add simulator to the end of your game name, it sort of like falls into a joke framing right um and that's uh, there's some fun adjectives on the front of that one and then there's also an airport for aliens currently run by dogs which is maybe my favorite game title of all time thank Um, you just beautifully descriptive tells a story (laughs) it tells a whole narrative i love that um and then uh just a random one i'm seeing in your itch.io that says screw you bear dad is another uh one of my earliest games yeah the, the the I, I think what I want to ask is like why frame your these games and the the first two in particular are like pretty substantial undertakings right why frame them as jokes what's the motive behind that I think a key purpose of my life at this point and a specialty mm-hmm. I've gained over time following my creative impulses and specialties is taking absurd ridiculous or distressing subject matter and finding a way to make it meaningful. So yeah. taking an airport for aliens currently mm-hmm. run by dogs, something that could by all accounts be a joke or a meme. And not really pushing too far against that framing. I, I, yeah. I did what I could to, to do that in terms of marketing or whatever else, present it that it would actually be deeper. But at the end of the day, if someone looks at that and goes like, lol, stock photos, then <laughs> right. there's nothing you can right. really do to push against that. Uh, and to a degree, you shouldn't. Because you get this 
immensely satisfying feeling of seeing this person walk in for the joke, two dogs walk into a bar, also they're airport controllers. Uh, and the first time you see someone cry playing a game like that, the first time you see someone encounter something ridiculous and find themselves taking a step back and going like, wait, a big thing in Space World at Organ Training Simulator is people say out loud the things they're looking for as they're looking mm. for them in the sort of like the auction list and trying to buy it for clients. So they go like heart, liver, stomach, heart, liver, stomach, large hearts, stomach, liver, large heart, stomach, 70 liver, large heart, stomach, 70 liver. And then maybe if a member of their family walks by or they just suddenly realize the words that they're freaking <laughs> saying and going. You're talking about the player themselves. The player themselves, right. yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Saying... Not just, you know, if they get to the, po- to the point of, oh gosh, as soon as a dollar was attached to something, I was able to render this horrific thing into just a commodity. Isn't late-stage capitalism yeah. horrible? Even just at the base level of a game that looked like this, this ridiculous yeah. joke, I'm suddenly attaching immense meaning to a dog named Chad Shakespeare and how he keeps undercutting every single deal I try to make. That's one of the most exciting <laughs> things in the world to me. So you have this other game coming out. It's called El Paso Elsewhere. El Paso Elsewhere doesn't read to me as a joke, right? It's not, it doesn't sound very funny um, from what I can see of the trailer. Like there are some, there's some weirdness to it, but it doesn't, it feels like a, 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 a difference. Hmm. Um, can you talk about why the decision to make that feel different? I've noticed this really interesting thing where attempting to follow success is deeply fraught. Maybe you managed to hit the exact same bar of quality or zeitgeist that you did before, but it doesn't, it just doesn't repeat the same level of commercial success a second time. Uh, yeah. Maybe you don't manage to hit what the original thing was looking for. Following these external impulses is so fraught because there's very little process for it, which is why one of the most disastrous things you can encounter as an independent developer is having your first game blow up or getting a game from a game jam where your entire thing is just instinctual and trying to throw stuff together and see what sticks and it blows up. And now you've got a publishing deal Mm. with 500 K on the line and you have to figure out how to make that into a 10 hour experience. Uh, yeah the commonality for those two things is that you have no process for reaching those things. And Uh I'm very fortunate that to this point, the perspective I had was initially what's going to keep me in this industry. What are the processes I actually love engaging with? So Mm -hmm. that took me from journalism into writing to to narrative design into now leading a studio and doing design and management and production, all these other things. I apply that same process and intentionality to making games I explicitly try to follow where the game is going, uh, what the game needs to be instead of, man, co-op shooters are really successful right now. I should try to make one of those because, hey, maybe you missed the, maybe you missed the boat or maybe you aren't supposed to make a co-op shooter like existentially. Yeah. I think all of those things yeah. are valid. So for El Paso Elsewhere, I kept rolling around in my head for years what I would do if I had the opportunity to make a new Max Payne, what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And eventually I, I, I got existential and upset because I was like, even if uh, 
I had the opportunity to work on Max Payne, I wouldn't be able to do it my way, quote unquote, right? I, I wouldn't be able to bring this mm. full scope of imagination that I bring to it. And there's a very, very, very small chance I'd ever receive that opportunity in the first place. So screw it. I'll make my own thing. One of the most satisfying things in the world. I use, I'm using the word satisfying a lot, but that's another word for contentment and a lot of the contentment I'm feeling around, mm. not the, the sense that I've completed anything, but just that the road I'm on is, again, knock on wood, a positive one, is that people message me and they're like, did you work on this game? Or I saw this quest in, the, in a game that you worked on. Was that you? Or I found out <laughs> that you worked on this game and it made all of the sense in the world. Of course it turned out that way. That's a joy to hear because it means that yeah. the process can be felt even in completely divergent areas. So to answer your question about El Paso Elsewhere, embracing the freedom of what does a spiritual successor to Max Payne look like? Uh, what does the game want uh -huh. to say? Uh, what does it retain of previous games? What is divergent? That's been really exciting. And I think it's emblematic of the rest of my creative process. So in contrast to say an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, which takes a joke and uh, makes you cry with it or finds these other ways to engage with you uh, outside of the seemingly shallow surface level of a meme and the medic framework that mm -hmm. we chose. There's going to be points in El Paso elsewhere that already they're making people laugh and they're like, I didn't expect to feel or see this within a, within this game. Originally, El Paso Elsewhere was supposed to be a game called Pill Cop, uh, where it was just like kind of a straight-up pastiche of Max Payne. And I'll be honest, I think it would be more commercially successful, or at least like outwardly commercially viable to pitch yeah. that game to a publisher. What if we did like a satirical yeah. take on uh, Max Payne? I think that would be a pretty easy thing uh -huh. to pitch. But what we're pitching instead, what we're making instead, because it is following its voice and these intentional constraints we're putting out over time, I am so much more excited about what that thing is going to become. And it feels like something you would see from our studio and that people might actually buy, even if they aren't interested in the genre, because yeah. it comes from this common root that I'm through things such as the things I consume and watch and the, the way in which I watch them and what I'm looking for. It has this shared identity and language. Do you think of, of these games you're making as, as acts of vulnerability i think every game i make is in some way i don't think of them as acts of vulnerability but i think every game i make is in some way deeply vulnerable because i am presenting to you something that i think is interesting something that i believe in personally when mm -hmm. i direct a game so funny example about this actually space warlord organ training simulator there was a point where I was terrified that anyone would like it, that we had, not that we had messed up because like we executed on the thing, we did the thing, but that this would be for anyone and that anyone would care about it, especially as much as we did. Yeah. I was terrified. So recently I sent out yeah. the first builds for El Paso elsewhere, uh, pre-alpha here is the core mechanics of the game and its language and one of the biomes and some of the enemies. And I sent it to a friend with this message full of caveats, like, hey, it isn't finished, uh, but yeah. here's what we've got, and I'm not sure if it's going to work, but uh, I, 
I, I wish there was some way to know that it was going to work, but here's what we have. And he sent me back a message that said, you know, you sent me the exact same message when you launched Space Warlord, right? Like three days before it came out. And I was like, no, no. And he sent me a text that was verbatim, the exact same text that I had just sent for El Paso Elsewhere, but with the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the name Space Warlord Oregon Trading Simulator in there. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is terrifying to believe in a thing that is deeply idiosyncratic and say, I think yeah. you're going to love this. And yeah. I'm really good at maintaining that for like 95% of a project. But the last 5% immediately before release, I fall the heck apart. I am a nervous wreck. Yeah. Every piece of feedback feels like the biggest thing ever that might single-handedly sink uh-huh. the game. And so one thing that I yeah. legitimately tell my teams at this point is, hey, uh, for like 95% of this project, I'm going to know what I'm doing, and I will be a competent <laughs> and reasonable human being <laughs> right. Right, right before launch. And so, yeah, I'm going to take on board your feedback and whatever else, but like this vision that we have, I believe in it. For the last 5%, I'm going to be a mess. So I'm going to need you yeah. to tell me why we did certain things and that the things are good if you believe they are or if a piece of feedback is not invalid if if a piece of feedback is invalid because i'm not going to have the context or distance anymore to make those claims and to believe in that dog airport game when no one else does um (laughs) right and yeah even that is that marker of intentionality of introspection of trying to learn these things about myself and about my collaborators and explicitly fold them into the way I make games and other things, that's really important to me. And I think if I didn't have the ability to apply those lessons, if I was here for to make one hit game as opposed to five games and let's see how they do, let's see how far they can fly, mm-hmm. I think I would actually be mm-hmm. less happy. Mm-hmm. Because you, it would it would be higher stakes, is that the reason? More so that right now, part of the approach I bring to games is I make every game with the expectation that it's going to fail. Space World Order yeah. Training Simulator, we had a plan. I did not invest my life savings into it. Uh, explicitly, people were paid ahead of time. If it had all fallen apart, I know how much money we'd invested and it was a com- amount of money I was comfortable with and could recover from. And everyone associated with that team, in the worst case scenario, could walk away unscathed. Best case scenario, we make a profit and I get to fold that into the studio and make more games with more people, including those folks. Um, And that's what ended up happening. But having that perspective and making games in this way and making multiple games at a time means that that impulse, that last five steps terror that this is all going to fall apart is something that I'm actively disincentivized to fall into. And I know too many people and my heart, uh, my heart hurts for them that Mm. they made incredibly precious, beautiful things, but they can't look upon it as a positive project or thing to have built because it did not fulfill the existential goals that we can't guarantee are going to occur from anything um, in the process. Man, 
This is brutal to hear because um, this is like you're articulating maybe the tension that I live with. I don't know. I I lack the ability to to have a purely creative approach to something. This podcast is maybe the closest thing I've ever done to something like that. Mm. But even then, I think in terms of success still, like my brain just works that way. I want to have that affirmation of the success. You know what I mean? I want to be able to walk away from this going, it worked. Yeah. And I like what you're saying is like so important, I think, for me to hear um, and probably hopefully for other people to hear because I think my entire life has been characterized by doing a half creative, half marketplace thing. I mean, for, for me to, to validate that, I don't think I'd be as excited yeah. by creativity if it wasn't in a commercial context. I consider myself a commercial right. artist making deeply creative things within a marketplace to achieve financial mm -hmm. goals. And it's hard for me to, it, no matter what the project, it's hard for me to forget those stakes. It's hard for me to forget, like, I spent so much time talking to people and editing this podcast and blah, 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 you know, without uh, wanting that to pay off. You know, without without remembering everything that I've gained from it and everything like that, that it, it does for the people who do listen to it or whatever. I think the question I have for you, I mean, from what I've read, it feels like El Paso Elsewhere is maybe the most personal game you've made so far. Is that fair to say? I'd say it's the game that has the most pe it, it has me in as many. It has me in more places than I typically put into a game. I've got incredible collaborators. Yeah. So even when it comes down to, you know, criticism of them, uh, I can't, sure. or criticism of a piece of the game, I can get, you know, full mama bear and say, hey, <laughs> the audio was great. The decisions that my artists made were great. I believe in these people. Right. Uh, F you. Yeah. But El Paso Elsewhere... I'm at least involved in so many places pretty explicitly. For example, I don't do chords for our soundtracks. I don't, I don't model things in 3D, really. Um, I don't write a huge majority of our code. Uh, the fact that in El Paso Elsewhere, I am visibly... I, I'm the main character... Uh, in terms of mm -hmm. face, voice, performance. Mm -hmm. I am the lyricist for the soundtrack. So we have this incredible soundtrack that's being created by um, R.J. Lake. But I'm the vocalist. I'm rapping for this original rap soundtrack that's coming together uh, on every wow. single track. Sets of dinner plates. Can you even hear me? I know the time is difficult and I don't mean to pry. But I need to know if you just watch your friends and family die. It was an accident. There's a theory going. We don't think you did it. There's no way of knowing. The unblinking red light means you're exposed, means you are raw, means you're on the record. Can you I am designing all of, I, I designed the characters, I, I, I designed the roles that each character would occupy. Our uh, character designer and sort of uh, leading artist on the game was, this person goes by the name of Saint Vulture, but the I made the call, but as always, sort of like I made the calls on like, art direction and what our ultimate goals we were trying to achieve with the different creatures and what role they would have in the combat and what animations each would use. All the animations for creatures in the game, like enemies, are based off of mm -hmm. 
footage I shot in an unfinished living room because we had to replace the flooring <laughs> to like me walking on unfinished tile snarling like a werewolf and doing the actions that we wanted the werewolf to do and explaining the role that they would have i yeah it feels like for this game at least more so than almost any other project i've worked on i wasn't just enabling and empowering my creators to do their best work to reach a singular vision i have had a pretty explicit role of defining what the game is and being the face and voice of it at sort of like yeah. every major vector uh, to achieve, again, something very specific. So we have our typical approach of trying to enable and empower collaborators, but like this is such a specific thing and it is so specifically yeah. related to me. There is an element of terror there. So my question is, what happens if like your dad is not a huge fan of this game? How do you, how will you feel about that? And how will you handle That's it? That's the exact thing, right? Like in the before, before if yeah. someone criticized the soundtrack or vocals on the soundtrack, I could defend my teammates. Or I could disregard that, or I could be like, yeah, that's valid, uh, and we'll fix that for next time. If someone doesn't like the soundtrack now, or thinks that the rapping is whack, that's me. If someone uh, thinks that the enemy design or balance is off, that's me. It's all my collaborators, but it's also me explicitly. So... uh, if my dad doesn't end up liking it, like that's something I'm already in doing intentional work to come to peace with. If uh, mm. Mm. if people don't like the game or find that there's some critical flaw with it, that's gonna hurt. Especially since right now it's kind of like our our jewel and our crown, this thing that we are really investing the time and uh, and, and funds to make as good as it can be. That's that's yeah. gonna hurt. But crucially, because of the rest of the approach of the studio, it won't be the end of the world. It will be, hopefully, the opening for, all right, what do we learn next? What comes after this? Yeah. What's the work? What does the work look like to prepare for that? I'm not trying to, like, jinx it or spook you no. or something. But I'm I, I am really interested in, in the subject of failure, honestly, and um, how people handle it or think about it or prepare for the possibility of it. And the stakes feel high, you know, to something like this. And so, I'm yeah, I'm just curious for my own sake, like how, what's the work you do to prepare for something like that? Lots of introspection. Uh, if you have the funds, you go to yep. therapy. Uh, I do not have the funds, so I yep. uh, talk to a lot of friends <laughs> who have had therapy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. What does your therapist say about this? Can you ask him? For you, like, if you can just bring back a worksheet, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, so, yeah, like a lot of it is introspection. A lot of it is being aware of my reactions to things in the moment. If someone criticizes a piece of the game or if I see a thing, I try to very intentionally take a step back and say, why do I feel this way about feedback? Why do I feel this way about positive feedback? How am I reacting to this? As much as I would apply a process to our creative efforts, how am I applying process to myself? That self-awareness and that intentional detachment and that constant sort of cycle of introspection is a big part of why it feels like I'm taking the hardest path in making things. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. it feels like I take implicitly with every project this idea 
that part of my job in making this thing is to also become a better person in the process of making it. And it would be yeah. really nice if I could just make a thing <laughs> without, uh, like there was times for an airport family to come to my dogs because of some of the threads in it. It's like, oh, I have unresolved issues with, uh, <laughs> I have unresolved issues with this piece of my life. Part, uh-huh. I need part of my development day, part of my work day, even if I'm working on something else, is to take a step back and to work on that and to in some way at least make progress towards resolving that because otherwise I cannot make the game. I can't make the game and it can't be as good as it needs to be. I apply this to my contract work. I apply this to my regular work. And it it feels like I've made this sort of like immense growth as a person in a fairly short period of time because of this process. But it's also, frankly, exhausting. And yeah. um, there is a part of me that fears that being relentless in this regard, because you never really get finished as a person, is going to yeah. end up being unsustainable itself. And so that's a new subject for me to yeah. think about and pray about and right. examine. And it never ends. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so for our last yeah. question, um, we do something with what's called the feelings wheel. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the feelings wheel. It's a therapist tool that is used to help identify specific emotions. So it has an inner ring with basic emotions, happy, sad, um, those kinds of things. But then they branch out. So under happy or under sad, it would say like lonely, vulnerable, despair. And then but only under lonely, it would say isolated, abandoned. So like more and more specific. There are 82 uh, feelings on this feelings wheel. We're going to spin it, spin it, and whatever feeling it lands on, I want you to tell me about a game that's made you feel that way. See? Free therapy. (laughs) Exactly. So tell me about a game that's made you feel inquisitive. Inquisitive. Okay. I'm going to take the cheap way out and say one of my favorite games of all time, because it does legitimately evoke this, uh, The Evil Within 2. And the reason why is it's a survival horror game that applies that loop to an open world structure. And the really beautiful thing about the way in which they accomplish that and the way in which they approach that is in horror and survival horror, when you have limited resources, you need to go into the dark to get more resources. Mm -hmm. In the process of doing that, you encounter other things that have both bespoke and systemic impacts on the rest of your adventure going forward as a result of experiencing them. Which means expending more resources. Which means when you're all said and done, when you've come on the other end of a crucible, you need to go back out there, don't you? So in The Evil Within 2, it was such a satisfying process of looking at this world or seeing like this weird thing like a, a house with its door open when all the rest of the doors in the town are closed and all the rest of the lights are off because something really bad has happened here. And here's a, a house that is normal and has its doors open and its light on. Don't worry, Sebastian. It's just a small, quiet town. Yeah. Too quiet. That means something bad, but dang it, I need more pistol ammo. <gasps> So I walk in through that door anyway. Um, Better check it out. 
Hello? Inquisitiveness in particular relies on you taking the shot that this person is also going to ask these questions with you. So when I encounter something that makes me inquisitive, having worked on games like that, I both feel a deeply special relationship with them. A lot of my favorite games evoke this. But also, uh, I feel a terror and a empathy on their behalf. Because gosh, that type of thing is hard to build. Whether you're creating something or consuming someone else's creation, true understanding requires a certain level of inquisitiveness, a, a kind of mutual curiosity. It means exactly like Xavier said, taking that shot, that the other person's gonna explore these questions with you. That feeling of vulnerability you get when you step into the dark because you wanna see what's there, it's universal. But some of the most important things come from feeling our way around the dark. And I, I was struck in particular by just how much of Zolivier's process of making games works like this. He makes games because part of that process is personal growth. He doesn't know what he's gonna discover. He doesn't know how much it will apply to his work. He doesn't even know if it will be pleasant or extremely uncomfortable. And almost every time, it's terrifying. But he feels around in the dark anyway, searching for more. Anytime we release highly personal work into the world, it's gonna be that way. Obviously, we want affirmation. We wanna be rewarded for all of our hard work. is looking for 10 out of 10s, and I'm looking for five-star reviews on Apple. By the way, remember to rate and review this podcast. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, but maybe the real reward comes from abandoning the validation hunt altogether. Maybe it's time we stop allowing the world to sort naturally into fans and haters. After all, ignoring the haters is a nice idea, but it's rooted in fear. It's avoidance. What art is about is being vulnerable to those who don't share our experience and being willing to accept that sometimes dislike of something we've made is really just a marker on the road to growth. to hear from you what's a game that made you feel inquisitive if you have one in mind tweet it at us or send a voice memo to me at richard at areacodenetwork.com and maybe it'll end up on the show you can follow zolivier on twitter at rit nelson that's w-r-i-t-n-e-l-s-o-n Check out his games, Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, and the upcoming El Paso Elsewhere. There's links in the show notes to all that stuff. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter at vidgamefeelings. And of course, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Video Game Feelings is an Area Code production. You can find out more at areacodeaudio.com. It's produced, written, and hosted by me, Richard Clark. Associate producer is Ashley Whitehurst. Our theme music is by Bruce Holtman. This is an Area Code podcast.